Hey, this is Greg Graffin from Bad Religion. I'd like you to listen to Books on Pod with Trey. We just had a great talk about Bad Religion's new book that's out there, Do What You Want, The Story of Bad Religion. Hello, readers. Ronan Gavoni is the founder and producer of New York's Wordless Music series and orchestra, which you can find out more at wordlessmusic.org, and the author of two books, the 2017 title Jawbreakers 24-Hour Revenge Therapy, which is part of Bloomsbury's 33 and a Third series. His newest book and the focus of today's conversation is Not For You, Pearl Jam in the Present Tense. Ronan, thank you for the time. How are you today? Good, Thanks. So, Ronan, you write early on that this book isn't a biography, authorized or otherwise. So, what is it then? That's a good question. The term I've been using or thinking of it in is, I guess, criticism. And that's a word that I think people have a bit of an allergy to, maybe for good reason. But I'm a person who I feel like I've learned a lot from literary criticism, film criticism, art criticism. And in my world of books and movies and such, it's fairly common, I think, to write a book about, let's say, Steven Spielberg or Stanley Kubrick or Philip Roth, something like that. And there's no shame or dishonor in saying that Philip Roth has 25 books and some of them are better than others. I think he himself would say that. And so when I started this, I spent a lot of time going to the library, going to the bookstore, researching online and just trying to see like what are examples of books that have been written about musicians bands that's not a biography that's not oral history that's not a saint's life frankly but that treats a band's catalog and career seriously and respectfully but is not afraid to be ambivalent at times and to talk about stronger efforts in others so I think I ended up writing the book that I wanted to read in a way. I think there's some really good examples of writing like this in jazz and about blues and R&B. But in terms of taking a band from their origins up to the present, I'm not sure I really found that book. And you say that you're not necessarily the biggest Pearl Jam fan, but you are a pretty big Pearl Jam fan, though. How do you define your love for this band, I guess, starting in the early 90s to where you are now? Yeah, I, as I try to mention early on, there's people who have seen the band 100, 150, 200 times. And if I were buying this book, if I were perusing it in a bookstore, that would be one of my first questions, basically, is what is the authority of the person writing it and what are their biases? I'm a pretty big fan, obviously. I traveled to see them and I wrote this. But I think that there's a segment of Pearl Jam's fan base that, for better or worse, loves everything, for better or worse, maybe does not listen to too many artists besides them. And I wanted to foreground fairly quickly that, to a certain extent, I don't really listen to much rock music anymore. And that's a bit of a question to me. You know, it was like, this music meant so much to me as a young person growing up. Is it as good as I actually remember? Or is it just a matter of me moving on with my own tastes? And although this isn't a biography, there are biographical elements. You do talk about the inception of the band, including Stone Gossard's role in the forming of Pearl Jam. Why is their lead guitarist the most responsible member for the band's founding? 
Well, you know, I think Stone has a very interesting role in the band. He's probably not the most visible, I think, to the circle of fans who are not the diehards. I don't think it's widely known that the first record, certainly, you know, he wrote the overwhelming majority of the music. And I think more than that, it was his ambition and his drive and his character that not everyone can bounce back from not one failed band, but essentially two, and to go from having Andy Wood, the lead singer of your band, die in his mid-twenties, to starting a new band, and then essentially going into what was more or less Beatlemania within two or three years. I think he's a very interesting person. You know, I had a chapter kind of about the individual band members and their personalities, and at the end I had to cut it just for word count reasons, but he's the group's hip hop enthusiast. You know, he's probably the resident intellectual. He's probably the biggest reader of all of them. And at various points in their career, he's even said, I'm probably the most conservative of the members. Not that that means being a Republican, but it means maybe being a little more cautious or, or resistant. So I think that part of my hope with the book was to tell the band's story, but maybe to point out a few things like that. Because I think if you ask someone who were the great guitarists of the 90s, there's so many. There's Tom Morello and Johnny Greenwood. And I think Stone is maybe not even among the first five or 10 names that people come up with, which I tried to address. Everybody, or just about everybody, I should say, who followed music in the 1990s has an opinion of Eddie Vedder, a guy that you refer to as Ed throughout the book. Is Ed the preferred nomenclature for Mr. Vedder? <laughs> you know, that's actually a really good question because I made a kind of editorial decision early on to refer to him that way. And it would be weird to write a book calling him Vetter, or even Eddie Vetter. And you're right that he's one of those people, I think Billy Corgan is probably one, that for better or worse, people had an opinion about and people were not shy about expressing that for a while. So it's helpful for a writer in that you're just working with a you know subject that is at least distantly familiar to <laughs> a lot of people. So it was interesting to read that prior to joining Pearl Jam, he was the singer for a band called Bad Radio. And you and others point out that he was a bit of an Anthony Kiedis copycat poser in terms of his stage presence with Bad Radio. How did he end up hooking up with the guys from Pearl Jam to form that band? And what changed in terms of how he conducted himself on stage with his new band? Yeah, well... Bad Radio was a local San Diego group. I mean, in fairness to them, I would say that they were one of several groups around then that the Chili Peppers cast a pretty big shadow. So uh, there was just a big funk rock on, and Ed, I think, was with them for two or three years. He parted ways with them. And what one really cool event that happened was he would basically volunteer his time as a crew member, stagehand, loading in bands at a club in San Diego called the Bacchanal. And in, I think it was 1989, one of the tours that went through there was Joe Strummer from The Clash. I believe his first, you know, kind of serious post-Clash solo project. And his drummer for that ended up being Jack Irons, who had just left the Chili Peppers. So, I think between the former Chili Peppers drummer and 
the former Clash frontman, it was a certainty that Ed was going to be there. He helped the band load in and he introduced himself. He and Jack Irons hit it off and started hanging out in LA and San Diego. And as a sign, I think, of how influential the Chili Peppers really were, it was Stone and Jeff who wanted Jack Irons to be in their band originally. And they had reached out to him. He had recently signed on for a tour with this band, Red Cross. And it's one of the best incidents. Stone says, if you know of a singer, let us know. And he says, literally on the way out the door, he said, yeah, I know a guy, Crazy Eddie. And there was a meeting in a hotel room. They traded tapes. And it really is one of those Cinderella stories of they fly a guy up, they write 10, 15 songs in a week. Two weeks later, they play their first show. And three years later, literally the other day, he's on the cover of Time Magazine. So I don't think any of them could have even dreamed of something like that. And I think it's also a measure of just how music was consumed then between radio and MTV. And it was just kind of a different path structure of celebrity and fame, I would say. It's crazy to think about how quickly things happen for Pearl Jam. And even their very first day in the studio is the stuff of legend, not just for Pearl Jam, but for another very well-known band. Why? Well, that very first day in October 1990, another one of those incidents you, you really can't make up, right before Ed got on a plane from San Diego and went up to Seattle, he went to see a festival called The Gathering of the Tribes, which was kind of an early proto-Lollapalooza. I think it was like a year or two before Lollapalooza happened. And it was organized by Ian Asbury, the cult. And I think it was like Queen Latifah and maybe Iggy Pop and an interesting kind of left field bill, you know, and Ed, I think sometime during the middle of the day was 50 feet from the stage watching Soundgarden, who is one of the performers on the bill. The very next day he flies up to Seattle, Jeff Amon picks him up. They go straight to the studio. He says, I don't want to do any sightseeing. I don't want to mess around. I want to just get down to work. And within an hour or so of touching down, they're recording a song that becomes Alive. Later on that same day, I believe it's in their basement studio, Chris Cornell pops in. He's been writing songs for a record that doesn't have a name yet. And I think Matt Cameron, too, Soundgarden's drummer, future Pearl Jam drummer, is there. And the song they record and that Ed ends up guesting on is Hunger Strike, which is probably one of the few songs that is the equal of Alive in just representing that era. And yeah, it must have just been like a transcendent couple of days in the studio. I think Chris Cornell had obviously been in Soundgarden. They were, you know, a very active band at that time. But if you imagine Ed, you know, he had just left this San Diego bar band. He's a security guard at a gas station. And, you know, just to find your purpose, I think... They became songs that, you know, whole generation knew and fell in love with. But it must have just been really special as a young person to find these people who are helping you realize your dream. That's pretty incredible. And you think back to all the great songs on 10, even those songs that neither you nor I 
ever cares to hear again, like a Jeremy, let's say, a song that was just absolutely played into the ground in the 1990s. Obviously, the video was very powerful, and that plays into this whole concept. In your mind, as somebody who has loved this band since the beginning and is still going to shows and well, not technically 2020, I guess, but 2019, what is the lasting legacy of 10 for you? For me in particular, I was in Philadelphia in 2016 when they played the record from start to finish. And, you know, I think it was during Evenflow or Live during track two, three, or four when it dawned on, I think, everyone in the arena. And one thing that was really special for me about it was I went with a friend of mine, basically my best friend from high school. He's the guy with whom I traveled to see shows and we've been to see the band in South America and Seattle and all that. But when he in particular realized that Tano was being played, you just saw this look of joy on his face. And I think that Pearl Jam snobs, they, like myself, we maybe are more partial to the middle period stuff, no code and yield and, and Merkinball. But it's not lost on me that that record just means so much to so many people. And, and yeah, when I was 12, I remember knowing the difference between the Jeremy single version, which had like a vocal melody and a different overdub versus the album version. That record came out when I was 11, 12, 13, which is just the perfect age to fall in love with anything. And it was just one of those things where my friends and I, we'd go to school and you'd go back home and you'd turn on MTV or you'd listen to the radio. And then you'd go back to school the next day and you'd say, did you see MTV Unplugged? Did you see the Stone Temple Pilots video? And it was not like I was hanging out with only musicians. It's not like everyone I knew was in a band. This was just what you did. And I think we just assumed it was normal that you went home and you saw the biggest rock star in the world, Kurt Cobain, wearing a dress and eyeliner, <laughs> followed by Michael Stipe, followed by Trent Reznor. In hindsight, it was quite abnormal, I think. But that's the beauty of that moment, I think, and why it continues to hold so much power for so many people, 10 in particular. The Cameron Crowe movie, Singles, is certainly a part of the early story of Pearl Jam, with some of the guys in the band playing small parts in the flick and also contributing to the soundtrack. Warner Brothers sat on the film for a long time after it was finished. They finally promised to release it if Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, and Alice in Chains play a promotional show for MTV. Crow begs Pearl Jam to do so. They agreed to it. How did that show go, and what sort of impact did it have on the band for the rest of that decade? <laughs> yeah, so the facts first. The singles release party in, I think, 1992, you know, it's sort of one of the legendary, or, you know, maybe that's what the word infamous was invented <laughs> for, you know, where... It was basically, you know, MTV executives and their kids, I think. And it was kind of the height of that grunge free-for-all. And so, you know, they kind of did what rock stars are supposed to do, which is show up drunk or fall down on the job. And and I think the reason why people are still talking about it in the movie, they call it the birth of no, which was that basically led to... I want to say five, six, seven years of kind of a quiet media blackout where they would do maybe two or three interviews a year. There would be a couple of trusted journalists and friends that they would talk to, but it basically began this period of Pearl Jam just being very elusive. And I kind of compared it to 
Greta Garbo famously walked away from her career at the height of her fame. And I think that there were many other things going on besides that one event, but that was the trigger, I guess you would call it, when they realized that if we don't stand up for ourselves and look after our own mental health and physical health, this thing will end us. You tell a pretty incredible story involving the late, great Chris Cornell and a cassette tape on the set of singles. What happened? This was one of the stories that I've really loved because I think it humanizes Chris Cornell in a way that he's like the definition of this rock god, six foot six or whatever, and Robert Plant type voice and just looks the way he looks. In the movie Singles, one of the main characters is underachieving musician named Cliff Poncier, who is in a band with the guys from Pearl Jam. They call him Citizen Dick. So anytime, anywhere in the world, you see someone wearing a Citizen Dick t-shirt, you basically have permission to go up to them and say, cool shirt. So in the movie, there's like a cassette of five or six songs. And just to show you kind of the level of detail and, and kind of fun these guys were having on the film, I think Jeff Ament wrote five or six song titles just down to give it a sense of realism and a sense of detail. And Chris Cornell found the tape one day and said, oh, it would be fun to go home and write five or six songs based on just these titles alone. So one of the songs he ended up writing was Seasons, which is one of the all-time great, not just Chris Cornell songs, just Seattle American rock songs, I think, period of the 90s. He ended up writing another song on that same tape called Spoon Man, which would obviously be recorded a year or two later. And... Cameron Crowe's wife, who was Nancy Wilson of the band Heart at the time, they kind of played a gag on him where <laughs> she said, I was walking around town and this guy, I bought this tape and uh, check it out. And, and Cameron Crowe started listening and he realized, you know, as a gift and just as a gesture, like how amazing it is. And then one of the songs on it, it's like a drum machine thing. It's like a throwaway, basically. It's called Missing. And it's in obscurity, you know, by any standard. But anyway, when Pearl Jam played Seattle in 2018, I think it was at Safeco Field, it was their first hometown show in at least five years. I still don't think they've really made any real statement about Chris Cornell and their friend, and it was about a year after he had passed. And I try to mention in the book how I think everyone knew that they would say something and they would acknowledge him in some way. And they ended up playing the song Missing about halfway through, I certainly didn't know it. I wonder how many people on the field actually knew it. But then you go back and you watch it and you read the lyrics. And it really is one of the greatest things about this community is is one thing just to have three or four world-class bands. But just bracket that. That's one thing. But they were friends and they were pushing each other creatively. And I think it's, I don't want to draw any false contrast with right now, but when you have this scene of, five or six clubs and 10 or 15 bands and a handful of labels and everyone has to show up and represent their own band and their friends. And I just think that that's not to say you can't do that with Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, but I just don't think it's an accident how much music came out of that moment and how much of it was like this was like artists bouncing off of each other and doing things for each other really selflessly that produced crazy, wonderful music. Speaking of Seattle-based bands at the forefront of the grunge movement, inevitably Pearl Jam and Nirvana were constantly compared to one another in the early to mid-1990s. 
How did each band feel about the other? Well, you know, I think at the very beginning in Seattle, 1989, there were more or less two camps of bands. There was the cool kids, the inner circle, which you would call Marani and Nirvana and maybe Tad and people like that. And then you had people who were considered a little bit more suburban, a little bit more middle of the road, a little bit less punk rock, a little less avant-garde. And I think that Pearl Jam was definitely considered part of that circle at first. And for their first year or two, there were a lot of people that were just quite suspicious of them. Not without reason, because I think that was a time when it seemed like every week another new band and a lot of them sounding alike. And so initially there was a fair amount of mistrust and doubt. And then I think what happened was in 92, the bands played a lot of the same festivals. They faced a lot of the same crowds. And I think that as Ed in particular found himself dealing with the pressure of being a celebrity, I think that that humanized Pearl Jam for Kurt Cobain. And I think that they realized, well, you know, a lot of our fans like the same music and there's probably more to be gained here by not sniping at each other. So two years after the release of 10 in 1991, Pearl Jam releases their second album, Versus. What do you think about Versus? I love it. I mean, for me, it holds up amazingly well. A lot of that is thanks to Brendan O'Brien, who I think as a producer is maybe a little bit underrated in the Pearl Jam story, just his consistency and just on the sonic level, how his albums sound. It's important to mention as well, this is the first record they recorded with Dave Abruzzese. It has a couple of songwriting contributions from him. And yeah, you know, I think that the difference between 10 and Versus is fairly easy to point out. 10 was a miraculous, happy accident. You know, I don't think anyone realized that after a week they would have 10 or 15 songs and that record would sell 20 million copies. Versus, on the other hand, it's a record where the chips were down and the pressure was on and it was frankly better than most of us dared to dream. Like, And 27 years later, it's not a coincidence that almost every song from the album is still in pretty frequent rotation. And moreover, it has these songs like Daughter and Rearview Mirror that are really the essence of what makes Pearl Jam special in concert is that every single performance of them is just demonstrably different. Another thing that separated Pearl Jam from some of their contemporaries is how politicized they became as a band, especially on stage. Is there one specific moment that you can point to where Pearl Jam became a political band? Hmm. Well, in the book, I try to talk about a couple of incidents. I think that certainly in 1994, when they played a benefit concert in Pensacola to honor the memory of Dr. David Gunn, who was a OBGYN who basically served poor communities in Northern Florida, Alabama, and Georgia. He was murdered by a anti-abortion zealot. And basically a year to the day, Pearl Jam, along with L7, did a concert in Pensacola in the heart of the Bible Belt, There were churches offering counter demonstrations. There was FBI agents and security guards at the hotel. And I think that they really made good on the 
promise that they made in 92 when they appeared on Unplugged and Eddie Vedder famously wrote pro-choice in all capital letters and exclamation mark on his arm, which I sort of feel like some of this history is a little bit in danger of being forgotten. I think that people forget that in this year, in 1992, there was half a million people who marched on the Capitol for reproductive rights. And it was a very serious issue. And to the point where it's probably not a coincidence that in the Trump administration, you know, it is the first sign of violence at abortion clinics really since the early 90s. Hmm. A year after Versus is released, Pearl Jam comes out with another album, Vitalogy, which includes the song, Not For You, obviously a song that you have strong feelings about, considering that that's what you titled your book. What was the inspiration for the song, Not For You? Yeah, so according to Ed, he wrote it after stumbling upon a letter that had been sent to Pearl Jam. It was supposed to be from a felon who said, this is how much I love your music. You know, apparently he wrote it in response to that. You can say that even without this incident, early 94, I think, was arguably like the peak of their Beatlemania moment, where they were unquestionably the biggest band in the world at that point. And not only that, but actively trying not to be <laughs> the biggest band in the world. <laughs> and so many things about this book changed in the three or four years it took me to write. But Weirdly, the title did not. It was almost the first thing that came to mind. And what I like about the song and what I like about the title is just that Pearl Jam has a contrarian streak sometimes, and they're not maybe known for their sense of humor. <laughs> but, you know, to me, like, it's just a very funny song. And it's very representative to me in that what could be a more Don Quixote type gesture than getting up in an arena in front of 18,000 people and saying, the song is not for you. Like, <laughs> It captures their dilemma in that they were trying to bring things back to normal. They were trying to regain their humanity. And yet they write just this indestructible pop song that even if you are one of the people who is being insulted by it, it's just the song is so undeniable that it almost works against itself and it attracts more people to the band in spite of its off-putting lyrics. So there's not many songs I think of theirs that just capture Pearl Jam in five minutes. And yeah, it's one that still gets to an interesting point about them. One of the biggest musical news stories of the 1990s was Pearl Jam's fight with Ticketmaster. Did this ordeal become an instance of the band cutting off its nose to spite its face? Or was it still worth it after all the dust had settled? Well, you know, I think on the one hand... If you want to look at it from a purely financial standpoint, yeah, they could have been playing not just arenas, they could have been playing stadiums, and they were capping their tickets at $21 or something like that. So yeah, when they were arguably at the height of their artistic powers, and some people would say that the live band from 93, 94 is their peak, they chose to take themselves off the road. And I think that it would have been one thing if they made two or three records, but they were tied up in court and they were trying to mount a tour where they were having to educate themselves about security fences and portable toilets. So, yeah, I think that 
morally, ethically, were they in the right? I think unquestionably. I think that the issues that they were highlighting about corporate monopoly and about fairness and ticket prices are even more pertinent now than they were then. But as someone who feels as though the band's best music was made in 93, 94, 95, you wonder what could have happened if it had gone differently, I guess. I really enjoyed reading what you had to say about No Code. That is my favorite Pearl Jam album of all time. And Off He Goes is probably my favorite song of theirs. What does the song Off He Goes mean to you? Mm. This is a unproven hypothesis, but I sort of feel like if I had to guess, you know, I think everyone knows someone like the person in Off He Goes. I think Ed wrote it a little bit as a crypto autobiography, but I think that everyone in their life has someone who you kind of wish you were closer to. You just wish were in your life more and through circumstances, partially theirs and partially your own, you're just a little bit removed. The person I always think about, like with Alfie goes, it's funny because he despises Pearl Jam. <laughs> He's <laughs> like a hip hop only person, but it's uncanny. Like every time I listen to it, it's just like right there in front of my face. And I don't know, that whole album I've been thinking about recently. And it's so interesting what, it's not that they didn't have any eyes on them at that point, but I think everyone was waiting for verses. Everyone was waiting for Vitology. I think by no code, it had been what, four or five years at that point. Most of us had just moved on or lost interest or found new bands. And for me, that was when they pulled out this collection that's just like, an encyclopedia of musical style and influence and tradition. And it's interesting because I think to this day, I don't think the guys in the band love that record. I huh. think that they feel like some of the songs are a little eccentric or maybe not recorded as well as they could have been. But almost universally, I think if you meet a Pearl Jam person who has seen five or 10 shows, they're going to love no code the most it's just weird how that works out you know it's interesting for me ronan in reading through this book i actually went back and listened to every pearl jam album through yield because that was about the point where i won't say i forgot about pearl jam there are still songs on subsequent albums that i'm familiar with but in terms of playing an album into the ground it was no code and then yield to a lesser degree and i had honestly forgotten how well i knew no code until reading this book relearning some of the songs and then going back and listening i'm like oh my gosh there's not a single song on this album that i'm not at least mildly familiar with that was part of my hope for the book was that both for people who are already pearl jam lifers that they would go back and maybe hear something that they didn't and also i think the far larger group of people is people who they know 10 and they know verses maybe, and maybe a little bit of vitology, but it's sort of like, wait till you hear this. Yield is a fascinating album among the band's biggest fans. Some look at it as the peak of their creativity. Others see it as the start of their decline. How do you feel about Yield? You know, I think it's maybe both. The first three songs for me are as good as anything that they ever did. I think that there are songs on Yield, All Those Yesterdays is one, that are just inexhaustible to me. I don't know why I don't get tired of that song. You would think I would from <laughs> the number of times I've listened, but there's just certain songs that you keep coming back to. At the same time, I think that 
by the time they were making yield, I think they were sort of reminding themselves a little bit like, hey, we used to have pop tunes, we used to have singles, we used to have pretty big hits. And you see that instinct coming back into the evolution and in Given a Fly. Look, I think it's just a matter of taste. For me, it's a matter of a record that's, I don't know, 13 out of 14 amazing songs versus 10 out of 14, you know, <laughs> but I would personally give No Code the edge. But I think Yield has many advocates. And also, like, I think just among non Pearl Jam people is a bit slept on just by what else was going on in music around them. How did Binaural lack in ways that the previous four albums were not? I think Binaural was a weird case of them having just a lot of songs. And I think that 1999, 2000, there were a lot of groups, Radiohead obviously comes to mind, who were just thinking about their place in the musical ecosystem. And is there a point really to still being a four or five piece rock band in the year 2000? They initially had a track list or album sequence that was pretty substantially different from the one that they landed on. And, you know, again, there's people who like these songs more than I do, but on the version that they ended up with, the first half of the album is just a lot weaker than the second. The second half of Binaural is pretty much flawless, in my opinion, and among their best work. The first half is quite weak, in my opinion. I honestly don't know, like, internally what the discussions were about who was advocating for certain songs. But yeah, I think that that's kind of where their drift starts becoming a factor. And you wonder like if they had taken the best songs from Binaural and even the best songs from Riot Act that probably would have ranked with anything else, but there's just a lot of filler. And I think that it shows because they don't play a lot of those songs anymore. Speaking of Riot Act, it was interesting to read how things started to become unraveled a bit between Pearl Jam and their fans when touring for Riot Act in 2003. How did this really come to a head in Uniondale, Long Island? Hmm. Well, yeah, this was the tour that I think it started in Australia in the early part of the year, and it was happening as the ramp up to the war in Iraq was happening, I think either their second or third show of the tour, they were in Adelaide, Australia on the day that 10 million people around the world on every continent and a hundred countries marched against the invasion of Iraq, which president Bush later called a focus group, I think was his word for it. 10 million people. Jeez. So after they toured Australia and I think Japan, they started playing in the States and pretty early on, they just started realizing that the group of people they were playing to were just maybe not different than the ones they had last played to in 2000, but were maybe showing a, a different side of themselves or a different opinion. And it first you know, happened in Denver when they played most of the show. And I think they played Bush Leaker that night. I can't remember, but there were something like two dozen people walked out at the end. And Pearl Jam, to their credit, tried to frame this as two dozen people left, but 11,976 people stayed in their seats. So why isn't that the story? I think that they were actually wrong in the end about that. A couple weeks later, they played in Uniondale, Long Island, which is about 
90 minutes or two hours drive, you know, by train from the World Trade Center. Long Island is a place where cops and firefighters and working class people, we can't afford to live in Manhattan or even Brooklyn increasingly. So they live on Long Island. And that's why it's kind of like Orange County in California, where it's kind of a, like a conservative pocket within a much more liberal state. And the crowd kind of got away from them. They booed very heavily when Ed came out with a George W. Bush mask. <laughs> and I think for the band, in a way, it was just as formative as that singles release party in that they realized, wow, this crowd is with us, but up to a point. And again, it's hard not to think of that incident. Now, the election that just happened, and you see this kind of contingent of trolls, I guess you would call it, on their Twitter and people who just kind of love antagonizing them a little bit. That was definitely, I think, the start of it was 2003 and Iraq and George W. Bush. And it's important to mention, I'm sorry to keep going, but yesterday was Veterans Day and Pearl Jam posted a really beautiful photo of Ed from Lollapalooza in 2007 with Thomas Young, who's a young man I wrote about in the book. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I think that that is still super present in their heads. And to their credit, they confronted a hostile crowd in Long Island with a Clash cover, Know Your Rights, which is, to me, one of the all-time best moments of Pearl Jam, just being unbowed and saying, you have an opinion, but we have one too, and this is what we are allegedly fighting to defend is the freedom to have a conversation, which you know you see now is just now is like the toxic end result of that. Back then, it was, you can't say something bad about the present wartime. Now it's like, you can't say anything bad about the present period, because like, who are you? You're only a musician. You're only a basketball player. You're only this or that. So that moment, Iraq, Georgia, we pushed, and even before it, you know, Newt Gingrich, that was really the seed, I think, of the moment that we see playing out right now. You point out in this book that after a remarkable stretch of songwriting success, really from verses through yield, Pearl Jam makes a half-grade album with Binaural, something that you just mentioned in this conversation, a third of a good album with Riot Act, and things got progressively worse or lesser after that. Why did much of the studio magic disappear from Pearl Jam's music sometime around 2006 with the release of the self-titled album that is unofficially known as the Avocado Record? Well, <laughs> I mean, it's just my opinion, man. So there's lots of people who stand up for these records and like them, I think, just as much, if not more, than the early 90s. C come on. No nobody I likes the Avocado record more than the stuff that they put out in the 90s. That cannot be true. <laughs> well, you might be right. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think that it's weird being a rock band in, I don't know, now, right? It's funny because I work in classical music, you know, I, I work in the orchestra world. And to a certain extent, you could say that like writing an, a rock song is the equivalent of writing like a Baroque opera, you know, like it's an art form that is just fundamentally antiquated in no small way. And so, you know, I think around 2006, 2009, 2013, I think that they were like, we're not going to make the seven minute noise collage. We're not going to do the weird noise interludes. We're going to write pop tunes and we're going to write fun, up-tempo stuff. And I go back and forth on it. You look at a band like Raging Against the Machine, they haven't made a record since 1999 and they've, they haven't been active that whole time. But you sort of wonder like, 
would you take one or two mediocre raging machine records i probably would and so i think pearl gem is still doing it and i think it's not a coincidence that the man whose birth is today neil young you know like he's still making records he doesn't care if you're on board great and if you're not well you know whatever that's your business and i think that would we all like another versus or vitology sure but i do take my hat off to them for just keep pushing it forward and and it would be very easy for them to be like you two and just go out and play the joshua tree and not bother with a song for the last 15 years they don't do that and i think that that's respectable I look at them a lot like the Rolling Stones. Even though they're not necessarily making Exile on Main Street anymore, they are still putting out records that may have at least a couple of really memorable songs on them while continuing to cater to the masses who do want to experience Rolling Stones live, or in this case, Pearl Jam live. Yeah, I think the Stones are a really good comparison, actually. Like, I think that Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, you know, the financial necessity <laughs> for them to go out is quite nil. But I think that they're aware at this point that there's a lot of people that it's not that the band exists for the sake of their fan community, but at a certain point, the burden just shifts from being like, you know, a band pushing this boulder up a mountain to like, this thing is sustained and we have fans who are counting on us and who are like planning their vacations and their lives around us. So we need to take it seriously. All right, I'm going to ask you a question that if you give a true opinion on this answer, you are going to inevitably enrage at least part of the most hardcore of Pearl Jam's fan base. The band has had three drummers, Dave Abruzzi, Jack Irons, and Matt Cameron. Who is the best of the three? Well, I answered this question once, and I gave an answer that I wasn't sure about. Today, I think I'm going to go with Jack Irons. I think that, uh, you know, it's... Do you like Mexican food one day or do you like Italian food one day? Those records, they're not maybe what everyone thinks of when um, they think of Pearl Jam, but I don't know if you've heard them, but like Jack Irons has a lot of super interesting solo albums too and instrumental stuff and semi-improvised. So I don't know. I think he definitely brought something really cool to the band and I regret not having more room to write about him. I feel like the way that he had to leave was really just unfortunate and a reminder of how like even in this world of rock and roll and music and fun you know like there's mental health and there's people's lives that are really affected by the rigors of touring and performing and just to get on a stage for two hours and not mess up and have thousands of people watching you but you know i think that that's another reason why their fans kind of love them is they really did have at least three pretty distinct modes between these drummers, so much different personality. And Dave, I think it was that moment, right? It was MTV where like, you could even tell like with the cameraman, how they're supposed to have the camera on the front man, but they gravitate toward the drummer. So all those images, all those performances are burned into people's heads and the drummer question will not go away. Near the end of the book, you write about gaining a newfound respect for three songs that you never really cared for prior to experiencing an epiphany for each. What led to your appreciation of Elderly Woman Behind the Counter in a Small Town in 2019? Wow, yeah. So, you know, I used to really like that song. I think maybe when Versus came out, it may have even been my favorite for a minute. And then there's songs in their catalog that are, I would call them, you know, unofficially bathroom break songs, or maybe even Flow or Last Kids that the diehard fans know will be played 
the next show and the one after that. So if you need to go get another beer, that's probably not the worst time. I spent a long time writing this book and sending it around to agents and publishers, and it was turned down, you know, lots of places. When Ed announced a solo tour last summer, which feels like decades ago now, I was a little bit reluctant slash hesitant because I had not sold the book. I had not finished it. I put in something like three years and it was beginning to wonder if all this time had been for nothing. I ended up buying a ticket to see him in Portugal. And it just so happened that that was the week, literally the day I think I got on the plane that an editor said, let's do this. I remember, you know, sitting in this arena, him playing and many thousands of people around me. And, you know, you have songs you want him to play, you, you know, songs that won't get played. And I think Small Town was third and he starts playing counts off in waltz time. And I could probably count on one hand the number of times in a concert this has happened where I think I just started singing along unconsciously and all of the months and years of writing and like waiting and hoping and putting myself out there, it all kind of came crashing down in this one moment, <laughs> like almost embarrassingly so, where I was just so overwhelmed. And I was seeing 20,000 people in Lisbon singing along to a song that I had known for most of my life. And I realized just at that point how important this band was to so many people and how much their music has changed people's lives. And I realized that like it was such a an honor, you know, at that point. I was like, if I just capture one one hundredth of the feeling in this room, I will have done what I set out to do. It's funny because I was just chatting with my friend who I was at that show with and I remember him the next day being like, dude, are we okay? And I was like, it's a long story, but yeah. <laughs> well, I'd say you accomplished what you set out to do there by uh, capturing what was in that arena that night. This is an impressive book and I'm curious, last question here, have you heard from anyone with Pearl Jam since this book came out? I would imagine that it's caught at least somebody's attention in some capacity. Yeah, not since it's come out. It's only been, I think, two or three weeks now, which is weird. But my editor and I, we reached out to them as I was writing it, I think last year at some point. And I've never met any of them. You know, I, I won't pretend to know any of them. But in the way that you just can deduce something about people's personalities, I knew it was important. I wanted them just to know about it. I didn't want it to be surprised. I didn't want it to be scary or weird. And so we wrote to Kelly Curtis and said, this is coming out next October. We'd like to make it available to you in whatever form you'd like. If you'd like to help out with fact-checking or as much or as little as you want to do, please consider yourself welcome. They basically said, no, thank you. Respectfully decline. And that was it. So I've heard through the grapevine, someone sent it to this person, someone sent it to that person. We'll see, you know, I wonder, you know, <laughs> what they think about it. I've told myself more than once, you know, that I didn't write it for them. It was more for the fans and, and for people like me than for their approval. But, you know, I'd be lying if I said I didn't wonder and, and we'll see. I hope that they don't aren't offended, by, you know, the, the comments about avocado or backspace or whatever. But it continues to be weird to me that there's 12 or 15 books about Nirvana, you know, a band that I love and obviously is so important to me. And yet one or two things about this band. So I, to the small extent that I can, I, I was just trying to even out that distribution a little bit and 
to set out as well as I could. Like, this is why so many people are insane about these guys is, you know, it's about music, but it's really about, you know, a lot more than that. Ronan Gavoni is the founder and producer of New York's Wordless Music Series and Orchestra. You can find out more about that at wordlessmusic.org. And the author of two books, the 2017 title Jawbreakers 24-Hour Revenge Therapy, part of Bloomsbury's 33 and a Third series. His newest book and the focus of today's conversation is Not For You, Pearl Jam, and The Present Tense. Ronan, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this very entertaining book. Thank you, Trey. Nice to be in touch And thanks to you for listening today. A reminder that you can hear all of our episodes at booksonpod.com or by searching Books on Pod with Trey Elling wherever you get your podcasts. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave a five-star rating and review. Helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod. Books on Pod.